Welcome to Death Readers. I'm Doug. I'm Rob. This is episode 77 of Death Readers, the podcast where we read through new books for the first time. Well, they're like old books, but it's new to us, or at least new to me. Point is, I'm reading through this book for the first time. Rob's read it before. The book this time is our, this is our book wrap party for Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park. In this episode, we're going to be reading through chapters 51 through the end of the book. Uh, and if, if you notice that the book doesn't actually have chapter numbers, then this is chapter control. <laughs> just find the chapter called um, control. Just, I don't even know what page number it's around, but it's control uh, to the end. So uh, if this is your first time listening, we read through these books uh, chapter by chapter and we take notes on what we find interesting about them or, or in these pages and we recommend that if you'd like to listen that you also reread these books or, or read them for the first time so you can keep track with what we're talking about as we go through so it doesn't feel as out of place for you and, and you feel like you can you have someone reading along with you let us be your digital book club um where you don't get to say anything it's just us talking uh <laughs> I, did we have housekeeping last time? The only housekeeping we had really comes up in the acknowledgement, so I can wait till then. Okay. Because Michael Crichton himself answered your question. Oh, cool. I didn't read the acknowledgement, so I'll take. I'll, I'll, I'll be glad to hear that. Okay, well. <laughs> what, I could read him right now. No, don't. No, really don't. No, really don't. Dude, don't. In preparing this novel. No, don't do okay, it. I won't. Oh I, won't I won't. I won't. I was really I concerned. I didn't. Okay. Uh, well, then, if, if that's it, then let's get into the chapters. Uh, chapter 51, as previously stated. Control. I have an overview. <laughs> My only note is, well, that's the boat. As in, <laughs> um, that's that taken care of. Yeah, my note there is that, uh, you know, the, the ship, apparently the ship gets turned around and the dinosaurs aren't making it to shore. Yeah, that was, that was a little anticlimactic. Well, it... I mean, unfortunately, because this is where this episode starts, let's just jump to the end of the book. Sure. And they do make it to shore, kind of. <laughs> some, some animals, like, do we do we, do we we think it's the same? Do we think it's the raptors it's, from the boat or? Not not that boat trip, but some, but it seems to suggest that previous boats have been ferrying unknowingly animals to shore. Sure. So, like, it, it seems to be like, yes, this time they saved this uh shipment from reaching shore and these animals from getting there but clearly they've been getting to shore somehow you know frog dna it's probably because of the boat's previous trips probably so anyway that brings us to chapter 52 (laughs) the seventh iteration destroying the world do you have any page notes on this chapter i don't have a page note i just have a kind of reaction to malcolm's speech which was duh um, yeah, that's that's my o- overview, is a reaction to Malcolm's speech. Well, maybe yours is a little more uh, thought out than mine, so what do you have to say about it? <laughs> but duh Okay, so, uh, Malcolm's argument. <laughs> uh, first off, kind of, fuck this argument. It's, uh, it's, I feel like it's kind of unnecessary. Especially what Malcolm is saying here about, like, he, he's, he's annoyed with the popular, like, use of environmental semantics that seems to be what he's actually complaining about the idea that we need to quote save the planet uh is the height of human hubris as if we had the capacity to destroy to destroy like an almost 
the, the idea of, of suggesting that that is what the argument is for saving the planet is like this idea of people being like, oh, the planet's going to have literally be destroyed and split in two and no longer be a solid mass of an object. And it's like, that feels like the argument Malcolm's making is like, oh, that's stupid. You could never do that. How dumb. And it's like, no, that feels like a deliberate obfuscation of the actual point. The point about saving the planet is to say, save it from being inhospitable for human life and other life. So I don't think any of like any environmentalists are actually making the argument that we're going to somehow disengineer some sort of catastrophe so significant that we'd be managed to scatter the matter that makes up our planet to the far reaches of the galaxy so completely that nothing resembling our planet would remain. Like, of, of course, that's not what anyone's thinking. And to present that as the argument of your opponent is cruel and cowardly. Like, d- and deliberately so, I think. Um, it's like a stop hitting yourself argument. It's like, I'm not. That's fucking stupid. Um, I wish that, that they that, that Crichton and, and Malcolm, you know, through Malcolm had actually had the balls to confront the real issue that is like humans have the capacity to make Earth inhospitable, not just for us, but for all life or at least most species. Um, I mean, truthfully, there's no end to how fucking like horrible we can make this place. Uh, we could we could really fuck it up. Like, we're actively doing it, and it's not going... We're actively making the world worse for our species, and and those actions are not going to cause the Earth to disintegrate. But, like, it is going to make it more difficult for us to live comfortably. So, like, I feel like Malcolm wastes this one of his final rants here, and therefore Crichton wastes the rant, just getting around to the point of saying, yeah, we should really be concentrated on making the planet habitable for humans, as if a agreeing to finally like to finally have the conversation that was on like the table in the first place is some sort of mic drop victory it just feels like that's pathetic like grow up that that's clearly not what's happening but like especially considering that if you had that argument and he kind of touches on it but we'd be able to talk about something like venus we'd be able to talk about greenhouse gas effects we'd be able to talk about runaway greenhouse gas effects and how that extinguishes life on planets like Venus's overproductive volcano volcanic systems there have destroyed their planet like made it made the atmosphere like just so acidic and toxic to life that even if there is like what you could consider like life on that planet it's it's not the it's it's again it's not that's not the meta concern we're not talking about some sort of like prime directive level of caring about life on exoplanets we're talking about a planet where we have evolved we currently exist and our current actions are causing the planet to be less hospitable for our species and other species. We are in the middle of an extinction of a mass extinction event that's caused as far as we can tell by humans. So like it, I feel like this argument really is like, it, it feels like a, a, like a first or second year college student argument. Like when you first start reading for the first time and you start being like, man, like, environmentalists are so fucking full of shit, man. They just want to save the planet. We could never destroy the planet. It's like, why have that argument? So so if we're we're talking about comparing Earth to Venus, like, Earth does not have the kind of volcanic activity that is making Venus inhospitable to human life. Mm -hmm. But what we do have (laughs) is 8 billion buttholes uh, just for humans that are farting out methane all the time. And those 8 billion buttholes eat a bunch of beef that comes from cows with God knows how many stinky buttholes 
that are constantly farting out methane, that are constantly filling the atmosphere with gas. And we go drive our exhaust farting cars to get to go to places where we can drive up and eat this, uh, eat the cow meat and eat the beef. And it just like there's all these things we're doing that are like billions of little tiny like volcanoes that are all pooping out toxic gas that's killing our planet or potentially contributing to the warming of the planet that will eventually lead to the potential out of control warming that will make life on earth really difficult to enjoy. Mm -hmm. So I just, I fucking wish that he had started on a level playing field and addressed that conversation instead of addressing this fictional made up straw man conversation about, well, you know, it's not you couldn't actually destroy the planet like that's that is a stupid argument um i don't actually know if i agree with you oh really yeah i i i agree with parts of you and i agree that it does kind of smack of the what you said first year college student Mm -hmm. but i feel like the point he's making is your argument is focused in the wrong place and we're going to waste a lot of time with that because of destroying the planet. Oh, you're destroying the planet can be dismissed so easily, like you said. And people can just go, I don't have to listen to you. We're not going to destroy the planet. The planet's huge. Shut up, hippie. Um, and I think it is in keeping with Malcolm's character. Like, no, of course we're not going to destroy the planet. We, you, we need to be focused on ourselves. That's where all of our energies need to be going and we're not doing that. We're just kind of crying like chicken little. The sky is falling and no one's going to listen to you. And we're not going to make any progress for decades because of it. Um, could it have been conveyed better? Yes. But then again, then the book becomes about th- way more. It stops being a metaphor and becomes a lecture. I guess I've never I've never interpreted someone saying we're destroying the planet that literally sure i've always interpreted it in the ways of saying like oh because we're deforesting the amazon it's making our planet less uh, capable of consuming like airborne carbon and and exert like uh, exuding like oxygen Mm -hmm. like it makes it harder for us to keep carbon out of the atmosphere and and that in turn will lead to greenhouse gases will lead to global warming which will lead to a, a global rise in temperature that will lead to life being harder for like or, or it being it being more difficult to live comfortably on this planet mm-hmm. for us and and unfortunately lethal for other life forms so like the idea that to start off and say yeah but we would never destroy the planet is like that's that's like guns don't kill people like it's like this is not the conversation <laughs> this is why why would you submit this because it's so obviously straw man and false this like we've never I, I, there was no point in in suggesting that that was the conversation I was trying to bring to the table, you know, me and as is the de facto sure. Hammond or whoever. Sure. Um, so why why would you force me to acknowledge that with your argument? And uh, that's what I, I'm talking about, not liking. No, I understand. I understand. A uh, couple things. You're pretty smart. No. And a lot of people aren't, so you can make those leaps. And I think he might have been trying to get this uh, perception change out to the masses with his book. Because not not everyone's going to see that, and if they have that, because I, I remember mentioning this, and and I think I thought I was quite clever at the time. In retrospect, I probably got it from Jurassic Park, but I, I certainly mentioned this idea uh, in my teen years to my mom. Like, 
we, we're not going to destroy the planet. We're we need to be worried about ourselves. And she was like, oh, damn. And she had very much that kind of reaction. And I think there are a lot of people out there who who it wouldn't hurt to have that <laughs> paradigm, sh- paradigm shift or almost paradigm. Yeah. Okay, I can accept that. I mean, I guess it, it because you said I was smart, I can accept that. Um, <laughs> I uh, uh, it, it is difficult for me to imagine that it wouldn't, I guess, just be so clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's what we're talking about, and that's like, a pro- that's a problem with smart people. You always see things so clearly, and you don't understand the obstacles that the lesser people have to overcome just to be in the same room with you. But that I wish then, like I, I wish that Malcolm had said that though, like like <laughs> like I, I wish he had kind of said not not like Doug, you're so smart, but like um <laughs> like a moment where where he's like he's like. I think that there are a lot of people being misled to believe that somehow the planet itself will be destroyed. And it's like, I feel like if he had just said that, then I could be like, okay, I guess I, I, I well, don't understand. That, I feel like he fair. thought he did say that, but through the character of mm. Malcolm who had to have that kind of Jesus, you pretentious human, stupid, dumb, dumb. Right. And then it gets lost. You know, the message gets lost in the art. Yeah. I, I have never I haven't had that experience with most people, I guess. I, I, I have a hard time I get very frustrated with certain people where like I if I feel like if they don't understand obviously what seems so obvious to me, uh that they are Lesser. fucking with me. Oh. No, that they're fucking with me. Like as I expect it to be so obvious that when they don't get it, I'm like, why the fuck are you wasting my time and making me explain this thing that you should implicitly understand? Because I get it. What do you mean? And <laughs> and uh that's all you get for that. That's all I, I didn't deserve that. <laughs> You're generous um, and kind. Uh, but, you know, like like if, if you ever had a conversation with someone about protesting at the Super Bowl and it's like, why does that bother you? And they're like, well, I just don't think it should. Oh, be like, like kneeling, like, that kind of thing. Yeah. OK, OK. Yeah. Or or any sort of protesting. At sure. The Super I was Bowl. thinking picketing outside for some reason. I. Or some sort of like or, or some sort of halftime performance, sure. you know kerfuffle where someone comes out and actually speaks their mind during the performance and it's like well why does that bother you and it and the response is something like i just don't think it should be there and it's like well but why like (laughs) i'm i'm not trying to it's like that thing where you're like i don't understand what your problem is and i genuinely want to understand because it is so alien to me that i i can't come up with it myself right and i'm smart enough (laughs) to know how to ask because i feel like a lot of people don't even think to ask but I think a lot of people don't expect to be asked, and so they don't have answers because they're not really thinking; they're just feeling. Right. So, like, okay, even if you could just say that, even if a person could just say, "Oh, I'm really just feeling like I don't like it," and it's like, okay, why do you think you're feeling that way? And it, it's like more often than not, just met with like defensive antagonism. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's other times where it's like someone will say something so fucking stupid, like, you know, Hillary Clinton's drinking the blood of babies, and it's like. Ah. She's cl- why does she look like shit if she's drinking the blood of babies to to be young and, and vital why does she look so awful all the time have you seen bill lately he sounds like the crypt keeper except without the laugh he sounds more like a wheezy like old door like he sounds like he sounds like the sound of a old like saloon door like just creaking in the wind like if if, if these people are so evil why did they why are they so bad at succeeding? Right. And it's it's like walk me through that and it's like well I just kind of feel like they're evil and it's like man come on dude like 
bring it. Like, let's talk. Like, don't bring it violently because that's that's very dumb. But like, let's have a conversation. I'd love to know. I'd love to know how they manage to look so bad while also being vampires. Because to me, it's like, that's obviously not happening. <laughs> they're obviously not drinking the blood of the of the young. They're not rejuvenating. And, and even if they were, it's not working. Right. So I don't think they're the kind of people to reject, like, like what would account to be, like, science. Empirical like, if they evidence. were able to prove, yeah, if they were able to prove that this had a good effect, they'd keep doing it. But it's obviously not working. So, I, I mean, you you wouldn't. This person making this argument doesn't have evidence for it. That's mm-hmm. like substantive. But like, come on, like, at least just look at like the thing. Let's look at the face of it. They're not. They're not doing. They're not drinking the right blood if they're <laughs> doing that. Like, they need to drink u- more useful blood. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Really so I, I appreciate you being able to explain to me that that way that okay well what if some people don't understand that this is the truth right that this is like this is what's happening that some people are misinformed and don't understand and that like we're wasting our time by not being more careful with our words and there's people who are getting lost in their ignorance and who could be allies or could be helping you know, in in this fight towards a better future or a better care of our planet. And by being careless with our words, we are holding ourselves back. So let's all be more careful. I I don't even, I don't even know if that's really what he's, the argument he's making, but that's the best I can justify it. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise I just disagree with it. Sure. Um, And I feel like it's time wasty. But anyway, that's the end of that rant. Um, I think that brings us to chapter 53. Under control. Oh, how nice and different. Right. I mean, I got to say, page. though, uh, mm-hmm. f- uh, it, it, if there's going to be something redundant and repetitive in a book, chat you could do worse than chapter titles. <laughs> yes. So. Except for how it, confusing it gets. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. But other than that, you know what? More power to them because the book's been pretty engaging and interesting. So. Yeah. If that's where he needed to, to, to focus his uh, boring, you know, back to the well, fine. Do you have any notes for this chapter? Not a one. Okay. Uh, my page notes on page 370. Okay. Where uh, Grant calls the technology used to create the dinosaurs, quote, the most dangerous in human history, end quote. Uh, it just occurred to me that he must have, in his vast expansive intelligent paleontologist brain forgotten about Oppenheimer <laughs> oh. I didn't realize there's going to be a test let me, <laughs> let me let me try to put myself in the mindset of 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 the eminently uh, smarter Michael Crichton and try to figure out why he would have said this I can do it um, Shut up! This is not okay. Go for it, because you're because as we've established, you're the smart one. I'm just the one who feels. Just let me debate myself, please. <laughs> Go for it. Oh, I think the argument would be that uh, yes, the, the 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 capacity to create like nuclear reactions is indeed pretty destructive and has been awful for humanity mm-hmm. um, in the weapons application sense, but 
uh, we could be pretty efficient and unstoppably so with biological warfare. And so, like, the capacity to bring back to life dead things uh, could be really catastrophic, catastrophic if we applied it destructively like engine inadvertently was incredibly destructive with their science but what if we took that technology to be deliberately destructive like engineering Um, a biological weapon yeah like an extremely communicable virus yeah like if you're in china if you're in like let's say like just some sort of general province like wuhan and you develop in a lab a you're doing some experiments on some sort of viruses um and then like one of them happens to get out like that could be really catastrophic for human life. Sure. See, I'm nervous about it because that's like I feel like I'm playing into it. Like I know, a conspiracy theory, I know, and I, I don't know. want to. Like <laughs> the bit requires started, me to like I start, acknowledge. I, I I I mean, again, <laughs> being being a lesser brained organism than yourself, uh, it took me a second to 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 stare into that abyss. But when I did, I went, "Oh no." We're in a bad yeah, place. The, the, the conceit of the bit is that is the is some sort of like acceptance of this. Wear your false damn masks, that, people. Yeah, that it, that it was it was a a, a a a fucking biological warfare weapon, which it fucking wasn't. I mean, well, okay, let me put it this way, because this is how science works. There is no evidence yet that it was. So let's operate as if it wasn't, and let people who learn how to whose job it is to uncover evidence go about their work and if they do hey we'd know we'll change we'll change our stance at that point exactly we'll, we'll adapt we will. Fuck. i talked about this last episode didn't i about how like about grant's idea about like theories about like or is that this episode i don't even know whatever um <laughs> you will have talked about this soon You're i will have talked loop. about this by the time this episode's over yes um check out the wake up Wimden. <laughs> podcast to hear us talk about a show uh dark, the show dark on netflix that deals with time loops because that's what i feel like i'm stuck in um anyway <laughs> um so i think that that i think is really where Crichton's coming from is that the the catastrophic potential of biological engineering is so untapped and vast mm-hmm. that like it could be real fucked up uh, if if used wrong, like we look at like what mustard gas did to people in World War One, and it was like so bad that we were like, yeah, we know it's war, but like, could we not do that thing? <laughs> that thing's real bad. I mean, getting shot and blown up, we can accept that. That's totally fine. But like, nerve agents are really ugly. <laughs> so could we just turn those off? I don't get how I don't get the scale of morality there, but like that's as far as I understand it (laughs) to me using a nerve agent on someone is just as fucking awful as shooting them to death or a fucking landmine. Mm -hmm. But I guess I'm not a fucking war profiteer. So my opinion doesn't matter or it's not for me to understand it. It's just for me to reap the rewards. (sighs) How you doing? I'm all right. Okay. Uh, Page 373. Ah, this is the moment I was talking about. Grant perfectly exemplifies how how to have a scientific conversation. You submit a theory backed by observable empirical evidence, not anecdotal, not emotional evidence, because that's not evidence. That's just a reaction to something. You treat that empirical observable evidence as fact 
until such time as the presentation of new empirical evidence that causes an overall the overall understanding of the subject to alter. It's very simple. It's so fucking simple. But I cannot tell you the last time I had a disagreement with someone and they've used those methods to engage with me on a in a debate. It's always like, well, my friend said, and I saw what happened to them. And it's like, that's anecdotal. That's inadmissible. Why are you telling me that? It's like, well, because I know them. And it's like, I don't give a shit about who you know. That's, you know what a fucking sample size is? Do you know what a small sample size is? Do you know what a dismissibly small sample size is? It's exactly your, what the shit you're talking about is. It's your example is all of that. So bring me something else. Bring me, you know what I care about in an argument about anything in science? I care about methodology. Like, let's talk about not just the data you have, because data can be fucked with. Let's talk about methodology. Let's talk about statistical significance. Let's talk about, you know, like, like, which, which, which outliers did you not include in your sample size? Like, which, which variables did you collect and then deliberately find a way to not include in your data set so that you wouldn't have to have them thrown off by the outliers? Like, I want to know all of these things. And that's why methodology is fucking cool. Because <laughs> if you're doing science right, you talk about that. Also, I like the part where in, in science studies where they talk about all the things they did wrong. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> then they go like, okay, so here's the thing. This whole, this whole study's bullshit, and here's why. And then they, they like go into it and you go, oh, yeah. These are the limitations of the study. How cool of you to admit your weaknesses and your failures. Man, science is so fucking cool. <laughs> it's so mature. It simultaneously can tell you empirical like information and also be like, but you know what? I tried my best, but here's some of the limitations about how I could even get this information. And I'm sorry, but I have to be honest with you. And you're like, hey, man, science, you know what? You rule. Good job. It's, being upfront and accepting your weaknesses. It's pretty amazing. It's it's a pretty fantastic tool. Here's another really long one. Okay. So I am. This is a this this is really fucking long. One. Is, I will just sit back and and try to interject interesting little. Uh huh. I'll probably just look like look to you and go thoughts. <laughs> Begin. At the end of this. Okay. All right. Page three seventy four. Grant in this page talks about uh, alligator nesting. He talks about behaviors of alligator nesting. Right, 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 right. And um, it struck me as it, it, it hit me when I was reading it as like this doesn't jive with everything I I know about uh, crocodilia nesting behaviors. And so I went and looked it up. Oh wow. Um. So the way Grant describes it is something like. Basically, like, you know, uh, gators will just fucking walk away from their their like nests and they won't even give a shit. And the babies will have to crawl out and like run to the water or whatever. He, he gives some sort of really strange like uh, sort of description of them being like pretty bad parents. Is that what it was? I thought that the male gators just left is what he said. Or did I miss the other part? After the very graphic description of the male gator inserting its penis after blowing bubbles, then it just left. Actually, the American alligator was better studied than most in the case of alligators. Only the female guarded the nest, and only until the time of birth. The male alligator had spent days in 
early spring lying beside the female in a mating pair, blowing bubbles on her cheeks yep. and providing her with uh, other signs of macu- masculine attention designed to bring her uh, to receptivity. Ugh. Coercion much? It <laughs> Alligators need enthusiastic, informed consent. There you go. They don't need to be, they don't need to be like coerced into mating. It's 2020, dude. It's 1983, dude, when I wrote this, um, (laughs) causing her to finally lift her tail and allow him, as he lay beside her, to insert his penis. That's, uh, I'm, what, what, it, it was an odd choice to, to write it that way. Okay, so this, hold on. This is that's not the part I really had problems okay. with. This no, I understand. I, understand. I, I, just, I just I remember just being like, I beg your pardon, book. <laughs> By the time the female built her nest two months later, the male was long gone. And although the female guarded her cone shaped three foot high mud nest ferociously, her attention seemed to wane with time. And she generally abandoned her eggs. By the time the hatching began, uh, by the time the hatchlings began to squeak and emerge from their shells. Thus, in the wild, a baby alligator began its life entirely on its own. And for that reason, its belly was stuffed with egg yolk for nutrition in early days. Okay. Maybe. But all the stuff I read about said basically, nah, that's not what they said generally happens. So my source for this first part is from uh, crocodilian.com. Okay. And they say, quote, Saltwater crocodile eggs take around 80 days to hatch. Although incubation time is influenced by incubation temperature, i.e. warmer nests have faster development, once the embryo's metabolism reaches a stage uh, where available resources, like oxygen, cannot be fulfilled, it's time to hatch. Up to 30 minutes before hatching, our intrepid baby crocodile starts to vocalize a pre-hatching call which not only alerts the adult female, but also triggers nearby crocs to call from within their eggs. Upon hearing these musical pleas, the adult female walks determinedly over to the nest and begins to break it open, digging into the hardened mud and vegetation with her claws and biting great chunks off using her jaws. It's clear why the hatchlings call the adult to open the nest. They'd never be able to break out themselves. In opening the nest, the female is inadvertently triggering hatching. The vibrations she causes with her movements and digging are strong signals which cause most eggs to hatch. Those eggs which don't hatch, she picks up in her jaws and gently crushes the shells, assisting the baby crocodile to leave the egg. Once the nest is open, she seizes several visible or calling crocodiles in her jaw and carries them down into the water, making several trips to collect the rest. Those which she uh, misses make their way, uh, make their own way to the water, finding their siblings through the use of cr- contact calls, special vocalizations which keep baby crocodiles together and close to the watchful gaze of their mother, who can remain with them for several months. So that's crocodiles. Okay. But didn't the book also talk about that? It also says that they frequently abandon their nests. No, but I'm saying the ones who leaving the crocodile babies to to or the gator babies in that sense. That's to my point because the book then went on to talk about crocodiles and how like the other adults came and helped out when babies called out, and that the moms helped open the eggs. And I thought was the difference between alligators and crocodiles. Well, let me tell you about what gators do. Okay. 
But did that, did that not happen that in the thought. book? Am I wrong? Um, I don't remember if he talks about Crocs being different or not. I but, thought, I, but I, I'm I, saying I remember some in around this discussion. There is a scene where he's talking about how uh, babies call out and other adults help out. And they even and the mom helps open the egg. Maybe it wasn't even a crocodile, but there was something right around here that discussed this in reference to the raptors. So maybe that was after descent. Maybe it's later on. What, what, what says what, the next thing that comes here is Gennaro asking. So the adult alligators don't protect their young. And Grant replies, not as we imagine it. The biological parents both abandon the offspring, but there is a kind of group protection. Young alligators have a very distinctive distress cry, and it brings any adult who hears it, parent or not, to their assistance with a full-fledged violent attack, not a threat display, a full-on attack. That's what I was thinking of. Okay. So that's still not that's still not what the uh, the sources I found describe. Okay. What do they say? In what's well, well, basically the main difference is this concept that they will readily and almost easily abandon their nests, which this assertion says these babies could not hatch if they weren't assisted out of their nests. So I don't know how entirely accurate it is, but it feels more accurate than Jurassic Park. I Um, mean, this is back in the olden times when Michael Crichton might have gone to the local library to get a book on crocodiles, and the one he happened to select was published in 1964. Totally. And that's why it's, I feel like it's important in this review to address the more modern takes or, or understandings of crocodile nesting behavior. Or Absolutely. Crocodilia nesting behavior. So because he's really talking about gators, let's talk about gator behavior. Um, so I went to LouisianaAlligators.com and found this information. As powerful and dangerous as alligators can be, they are strangely very good mothers. The female will defend her eggs and hatchlings from predators or intruders with a hissing warning backed up by chomping jaws and thrashing tail. She will build a nest in June or July each year of marsh vegetation piled in a mound several feet high and 10 feet across. Here will she, she will lay up to 60 eggs, with the average clutch being around 35 eggs. The decaying vegetation creates heat to incubate the eggs that will hatch in about 65 to 70 days, with eight to nine inch hatchlings. Interestingly, the temperature of the nest determines the sex of the hatchling, which Grant talks about in this chapter or in this section that we're discussing. Mm -hmm. The hatchlings develop a egg tooth on top of its snout to slit open the egg. It begins to chirp even before it has emerged from the egg. Soon the whole clutch is chirping to signal the mother alligator it's time to leave the nest. If an egg doesn't hatch properly, the female may gently break the egg in her massive jaws to help the hatchling out, and may even carry some hatchlings to the water in her mouth. There in the, quote, guard pool, the young alligators remain for the next six months under the watchful and protective eyes of the female. The young may stay near the nest site for a couple of years. During the winter, alligators will enter underground holes and remain dormant. As spring arrives, alligators emerge from their winter dormancy and the annual process of mating, nesting, uh, and winter dormancy begin again. So like you said, maybe Grant's just operating on old theories, mm-hmm. uh, but like none of the stuff I very quickly, and, and it just had my memory from other information. I don't know exactly where it came from, but that's why I double checked it here on these two sources. It just basically sounds like both like levels of the crocodilia group do very similar things. Mm -hmm. 
they both build the nest and cover it in vegetation and let it heat up and hatch. And they both assist the, you know, removal of that vegetation so the animal, the babies can make it to the water and etc. And it just, this, I, I just was really bothered by this idea that he had in here about, like, them abandoning. It reminded me so much of what, like, I remember hearing about this idea of, uh, you know, T-Rexes being terrible parents. And it's like, there's no evolutionary benefit for for mothers to be bad mothers. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about animals, we have to talk about like evolutionary psychology. We have to talk about like what they need to do in order to protect the, the one, the main biological function that they have, which is to reproduce. It doesn't, there's no incentive. There's no incentive for men, for male, like, animals to stick around like you'll see that in evolutionarily a, in many, many evolutionarily yes right. of course i'm talking about like lions or i'm talking about like tigers bears don't fucking don't the uh <laughs> but like those are all animals the hell that, that um that will eat the young of other males to end their line again evolutionary there's there's no other real reason for it besides like oh this isn't my thing it might kill me kill it um foxes do the same thing there's some documentary i saw recently uh last couple years that showed like these these foxes in i think iceland uh this like needing like uh there's a what do you call them they're they're, uh i know that the babies are called kits Mm -hmm. i think but i forget what the group is called um I didn't know babies has their just, own group names. Let's just call it a clutch. Sure. So they uh, litter. I think litter is probably that the closest right. word that's correct. Yeah. So the litter will like is like waiting in this hole for the mother to go get food. They're actually waiting for their father to come back with food. He never comes back. So eventually the mother has to like leave them to like go get food so they won't die. But when she leaves them, a roving nearby other male fox come like discovers their nest and kills all of them eats all the babies she comes back and he's like what's up looks like you need to reproduce again i'm really full um i seem like a really good mate right like i i clearly know how to survive right you probably want my offspring right let me fucking do it Uh, that might not be exactly how it went down at the end but like that's my memory of it so like but with female animals, there's no incentive to do that. She has all the biological incentive in the world to protect the fuck out of these babies until such time as they can take care of themselves. Right. And most mammals do that. Some amphibians don't really do that or they're like, especially with something like frogs, their uh, evolutionary system goes so quickly that like, I mean, what do you consider nurturing in that sense? If you have a, a bunch of, frogs or like tadpoles growing into maturity on your back like you can't leave them they're stuck to you <laughs> like it, it's not really nurturing to let them hop away when they hop away mm-hmm. and it's not really abandonment to let them do that but that's the thing about crocodilias is that they're so big that they kind of behave in this very nurturing ways again a lot like birds who will also protect and nurture and care for their young uh, m- males and birds too will do that too so there's this idea a while ago about like somebody submitted this concept about t-rex being uh like that like being a horrible uh parent and i think it uh this is all conjecture by the way so feel free to completely disregard the shit i'm saying but 
I think the idea was that because it's such a culturally and pop culturally ferocious monster, Mm -hmm. that how could you ever imagine it could be a caring and nurturing parent? And the answer is because animals don't do that. Like there's not that it's more common for animals to care for and nurture and protect their young than it is for them to no matter if they're predators or not than it is for them to just be like, fuck you, survival of the fittest bitch, I did it too. Like, it's, it just doesn't happen. Right. So, I I think that's what bothered me about this gator comparison, is it felt so much like that. It felt like this whole prejudice against predators, where you're like, like, you know, oh, you know, uh, it's a it's a gator. Why? How? It's so vicious. It has these big sharp teeth and it scares me. It couldn't possibly be nurturing to his young. It's like, that's, that's, not objective. That's incredibly biased. That's you using your evolutionary bias of, I know I can recognize a predator to influence your conjecture about its like nesting and breeding habits. And that's wrong. So that's why I got my tail feathers in a rough. That's not a phrase. No one says that. Oh my. Oh shit. Here's another really long one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, my next note, <laughs> next doozy of a note is page 376. And again, this uh, forgive me for criticizing a book that's over 30 years old and for having potentially out of date information in it about animal behavior. But here's another one. At some point here, the characters have incomplete understanding of zoological behavior. The book asserts that the ability to all of the all of this invent and execute plans is limited to three species chimpanzees gorillas and humans Mm -hmm. so i'm not up to date on the latest science but let me talk about how much more we know now sure so we'll start this conversation with the, the three examples they gave they gave were primates so let's stick with primates for now There's a lot of other primates out there besides the very popular chimpanzees and gorillas, and I'm sure more than one of those other primate species will eventually be observed inventing and executing plans. But the biggest glaring gap in the list of primates here is the bonobo. Bonobos uh, are a primate that's extremely similar to chimpanzees, but not at all as popular. Okay, uh, Real quick pause. I thought they were a variant of chimpanzees. I've heard them referred to as bonobo chimps. So um, couldn't they, they be are, under that umbrella for the purposes of Michael uh, Crichton's assertion? I mean, I can't speak for him, but I can tell you that they're different species. Okay. Um, Good enough. I, 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 they're, they have very, they're very similar, but they have distinctly different behavioral patterns that are uh, and genetic differences that are very observable and significant. Okay. Chimps are chimps are way more violent Mm -hmm. and bonobos are that's what's so interesting about bonobos is that they are not fucking violent at almost at all they're just fucking they they're constantly fucking and they will use they're very open sexually and they will uh they're very good at being compassionate it seems um and and, you know i'll get to it (laughs) But they are they are very similar to chimpanzees, but I don't I think they're not as popular, I think, mostly because of like Jane Goodall. Like you can go back that far to say like she really popularized for good reason, like the similarities between humans and chimps and the and the capacity of chimps to do these certain things. But bonobos kind of like nobody really cares about them. And, and I don't know about like. 
okay, so not not only have bonobos been observed inventing and executing plans, but experiments done at the Primate Center in Georgia suggest that uh, they may have the capacity for morality and even like a sense of fairness. Uh, that that is extremely high level, like thought process shit. Like that's big brain shit. Uh, having having the capacity to at least potentially have the an understanding of morality and fairness and give and take mm-hmm. uh, and observably just de- demonstrably showing these things the important thing there is that that stuff's even more high level like cognitive shit than inventing a plan okay and carrying it out like that's shit that we a lot of people think is exclusively human shit like especially like uh the, the concept of like morality and shit. Um, I strongly recommend reading the book, uh, the bonobo and the atheist go find it, read the shit out of it. It's great. It's fucking fantastic. Even if you don't like, uh, triptychs. <laughs> so that's chimps mm-hmm. and that's primates. So now let's move on to tooth whales <laughs> or I'm not even gonna try. <laughs> I think it's like odontoxitis. I don't know how to speak the Latins. No, I, I don't talk to six famous, like, famous whale. That's their like, that's their, like their genus or yeah, whatever. Yeah. Um, the undong talk anyway. six, six balenus. Except they have teeth. Fuck. Odontosatus. <laughs> oh, there you go. Odonto. Sure. As in, as in tooth. Teeth. As, as in yeah. orthodontist. <laughs> yeah. If you happen to have been an avid consumer of David Attenborough's work or other naturalist documentarians, uh, you may be familiar with the examples I'm going to cite here. Uh, So let's talk about. (laughs) Firstly, let's talk about how pods of bottlenose dolphins have been observed beaching themselves after chasing schools of fish to riverbanks and seashores where they feast on the beached fish. So what they'll do is they'll like as a group, run a group of, of, of fish into the shore where they'll leap out of the water to save themselves and just flap around on the shore. Then the dolphins will like slide up on their sides up to the shore and just open their mouths and let fish fall in and eat them. And then when they need to be back in the water, they'll slide back into the water and do it again. That's a fucking inventing a plan executing it realizing it works and doing it over and over and over again because you're fucking smart that so fits all those things that they were talking about the chimps and gorillas and humans only being able to do Uh, another inventive plan that bottlenose dolphins execute is this hunting method that has been observed in in uh other rivers and places like that where uh, the dolphin will swim in a circle like a muddy circle they'll swim in muddy waters but they'll swim in a circle around a school of fish and they'll use their their uh, tail to kick up the mud in a circle, which will create like this weird sort of like fish net. So the fish in the circle will like look around and see these walls of mud in front of them and they'll feel like it's a phys- they seem to react like it's a physical barrier they can't penetrate. So they don't try. So what they do instead is these fish try to jump over it. So they leap into the air and try to leap over this barrier. Well, these dolphins are fucking smart and they all line up around the sides of these these like muddy fish nets and the fish jump right into their fucking mouths. <laughs> and then they just do it over and over again until they're done eating. And I'm not even going to get into bait balls, 
which is another amazing thing that they seem to do that is inventive and planning and fucking great. Um, other large whales will do what, what's called a bubble net, mm-hmm. which is very similar to what the, the mud net is doing, where they will like, they'll exhale in a circle around a pot of fish and that'll corral the pot of fish into the barrier of the bubbles. Cause again, these fish will believe, or these fish, plankton, shrimp, whatever, will see these bubbles as an enclosure that they can't, like a barrier they can't penetrate. And so they'll just gather and start leaping. And then you have big like humpbacks or other whales come up with their mouths really wide open, like hugely wide open. And they'll just engulf all of this pod or this like circle of bait and fish in their mouths. And they'll take the whole thing and then just, you know, squish it out through their baleen. Now that's baleen whales. So it's a little different. The last example I'll use, it has to do with orcas. So orcas have been observed uh, using tactics and strategies uh, to successfully hunt seals in, in, in Antarctic waters. Sorry about that tongue twister. So what they'll do is the pot of orcas will find a seal in the water and they'll chase it. And this until the seal like finds like an ice shift or something like a, a flow where they, they'll jump on it and they'll be like, cool, I'm safe on this ice flow. Mm-hmm. Not in the water anymore. I can relax. These big, bad monsters can't get me. Uh, well, what the orcas will do is they'll they'll lose track of the, the seal in the water. And then they'll do this thing where they start bobbing vertically uh, uh, above water. And they will what they'll do is what they're doing when they do that is they're looking around because <laughs> they're fucking smart. And they'll pop up and they'll look around and they'll see on top of the ice flow the seal sitting there looking at them like, ha I fucking beat you. You're you stupid orcas. I, I beat all of you. I'm the best. And then they'll go, oh, hey, guys, he's right over here. And then what they'll do is the whole pod will start like swimming together in like a group. Or like five or six of them. I don't know how big a fucking orca pod is. They swim in this like they're like the mighty ducks. <laughs> they'll swim in a fucking flying V around the ice flow and then like charge directly at it at full speed getting a lot of momentum. And then as soon as they get to it, they'll dive under it real sharp. So what that does with the fluid dynamics is that it, it causes like a pull, like a force pulling down on the, the surface of the water, which causes like a dip in the water surface, mm-hmm. which eventually has to like, uh, has to fill itself because it's a, essentially it's a vacuum and it's a, you know, it's filling up this, this area. So what happens is that water that's coming from behind the orcas that's being pulled with the momentum of their force crashes into the ice flow, which goes over the ice flow oftentimes and will will push the seal off of the flow back into the water where the orcas can get at it. So oftentimes what will happen is they'll do this over and over and over again to an individual seal, which will exhaust the seal to the point where either they entirely break up the ice flow it's sitting on so it no longer has sanctuary, or the seal will become exhausted going back and forth from the water to the to whatever's remaining of this ice flow until the point where it just has no more energy to continue to do it. And the orcas will easily be able to grab it in the water or even more tragically, just gently grab its tail on the tiny little bit of ice flow that's left and just drag it into the water with them. <laughs> so again, there's been a lot of observable like planning, thinking behavior yeah. in inventive planning and executing of plans, especially when it comes to hunting by these animals. Now, if Grant was if it was talking or Ellie or whoever made that comment was talking exclusively about non 
hunting based planning and shit. I don't know. They don't talk about that. Sure. It's pretty th- this this is the kind of shit that like I think is really indicative of the the high intelligence of those animals. Mm-hmm. But uh and I think it should be it should be considered and this just sucks because the book's like 35 years old, so you can't really like criticize it. I'm just saying, like, as an addendum to this supplement of the of the book we're reading, if you're a reader who doesn't know that there are more animals out there who are smarter than than the three listed, uh, Google or YouTube search the ones I'm, I described, like bottlenose dolphin, mud net, or bottlenose dolphin, uh, like fish, like beaching, mm-hmm. or orcas, you know seal hunting stuff like that really check it out because it's really fascinating it's really interesting um and it again it speaks to this higher intelligence of a lot of these animals that we don't that i think a lot of people don't think about being very smart but they are thank you for allowing me the soapbox you're welcome that's it for that chapter for me so that brings us to chapter 54 almost paradigm do you have a note for this chapter just the just for the title a pun? Now? Huh. Okay. Uh, yeah, I only have an overview. Go for it. Uh, I, I like I like the scene. I, I like Hammond falling to the bottom of the ravine and breaking his leg. Like, after all the projecting and blame on everyone else, it's pretty enjoyable to watch him get his comeuppance. Um... Like... Yeah, this is a shift. Uh, this is the actual comeuppance, right? Or is this just the breaking the leg? This is just the breaking of okay, the leg. Okay, okay, okay. I knew this there, is there just was him, a, right. like, well, like he's he's like walking towards his bungalow, like shitting in his me- mentally, like, like really just like shitting all over everybody else, being like, man, nobody knows. I have to, I have to get rid of Alan was you know or uh, you know Arnold was dumb. He he was too old. He didn't have the gumption anymore. Wu he thought too small. He yes. couldn't think big enough. I got to get rid of him. Even. You know, uh, the the veterinarian guy whose name I forget, um, Regis. Yeah. Even Ed Regis is, you know, he's he. No, Harding is the veg- veterinarian. Regis was something else. Oh, but yeah, yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Harding, he's not good enough. He can't do this. Right. I, I picked the wrong crew. I'll start over. The next island will be better. And it's like, I mean, ugh, and then immediately he falls down this cliff and is just going to die. Somewhere. What it sounds like you're saying to me is that when you have a character that constantly blames everybody else. A character. A character who blames everybody else for any possible Fictional. shortcomings. Fictional character. <laughs> it's delightful to see them presented with uh, unarguable evidence that they are in the wrong, that they are bad, that they are not wanted, that their time is over. A character. Yeah, I mean, in this moment, with this character, it's it's like, it's a little heartening because it's like, oh, cool. It's you know, at least when you when you get to write fiction, you can write this thing happening. Uh, reality, maybe not so much. It's not as easy, but at least in fiction, in fiction, oof, it, it, it's it, sweet. Uh, justice finds a way. Yeah. Um, I do think though, however, like I couldn't help but like seeing reflections of my own mentality in Hammond's behavior. Oh, there, sure, though. right. Which is which but is hey, great the- when you can when 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 a book uh, makes makes 
characters identifiable, even if they're, you know, ostensibly the antagonist. It, it, it makes it, uh, you find a deeper connection to that book. Well, also, you know, the, the one advantage I have over Hammond in that sense is that I can recognize my own failings mm. sometimes and hopefully use that recognition to improve, mm-hmm. build upon it, become a better person. And it feels like with, especially with fictional characters like this, like John Hammond, billionaire, industrialist, narcissist, shyster, um, shyster, huckster, like, lies so often he doesn't man. even know he does it. Yeah, like, with a fictional character like that, it's, it's, it's something that they don't have the capacity to do, is to recognize their own shortcomings and say, you know what, I'm being too hard on these people, or my ambition is, uh, destructive uh, ridiculous <laughs> or 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 cruel mm-hmm. or inconsiderate or selfish unconstitutional any any of these things like that you could say about john hammond um it's that's that's sort of the advantage that people who can self-reflect and see where they can improve and acknowledge it and make effort to improve have the advantage so it's it's nice to see a character who doesn't have that uh fall on his back and be ripped apart by tiny little dinosaurs. It's really cathartic to watch that after, you know, four or so hundred pages. It's really nice to see that happen. Even though that hasn't happened yet in the book. Oh, not in the book. No, not in the book no. yet. It's going. I mean, but it's going to come. It's going to happen. Yeah, if you're listening to this episode, yeah. he's going to get it. When this story's over, he'll be gone. And that's and, the takeaway. That is what you have to remember. Yeah, it just like you have. Even though he sucks, even though he's still around right now in this in chapter 40, 54. 54. 54, not forty five. Right. 54. I'm a dyslexic. Sometimes I get those numbers mixed up. Um, 54. Um, by the time we get to... Uh, I don't remember where. 56, it looks like. He's he's going to be... He's going to be gone. Mm-hmm. So, just... You have to suffer through two or three more chapters... Until it's just over. <sighs> but hang in there. It'll be done. It'll be it'll be over soon. Um, so I think that brings us to chapter 55. Descent. Now, I want to be clear. You said descent as into decline, not as into object. Correct. Right. Because descent, to object to something. Descent. To, uh, to object to something as obvious as Hammond dying would be fucking stupid. Like, he, we know that he's been bitten by rap, by, by compies. They, we know that they have poisonous bites. We've seen these compies uh, eat babies and become youthful because of it. Um, and it's all in the first chapter. It's, it's there from the beginning. Right. Um, and he... Uh, <laughs> and so, like... To, uh, to to deny that that's the reality of the situation, that Hammond's going to die on his back being ripped apart by these 
like them venomous like tiny little dinosaurs but, oh, and, is, and uh, little little that's i mean ripped apart by little by by but, the scavengers who eat nothing but you know, bloated already dead worthless carcasses but the thing about it is that like it's it's the thing that's like you know really scary about the compies is that how many of them there are there's just so many more of them mm-hmm. than there are Hammonds. Mm-hmm. Like, that, like like every bite matters. Every bite matters. Um, y- it's like there's a, a population number that's larger than the other number and of Hammonds. And <laughs> I can't get um, enough of this. <laughs> it's so good. For me, at least. And he just, he just, like, again, just want to clear up any potential mishearing of the title of this chapter so that we don't get it confused with, like, some sort of, like, you know, childish denial of the reality of the situation. Um, You know, that's all I'm trying to say. So, I only have an overview on this chapter. Sure. And that is that I don't understand why the raptors aren't going crazy and attacking the the people who have descended into the nest. Um, like like for, for specifically because they go out of their way to explain and justify many times how they're nocturnal, so sh- they should have a pretty easy time seeing in this dark cave. Uh, but maybe it's a whole. Like, I think it's more of that vision based on movement thing, and I've never really understood that. Parsh- so I think that's where my problem comes from partially but also i think there is some as because he kept bringing up how they were hidden behind the i even forget what it is now square thing the transformer the something yeah it's some sort of electronic like platform and I like think and, they're on. and it almost seemed like only maybe the baby noticed them but then didn't care because it was a baby and the adult almost saw them but then turned away i don't know it, it, it was but then again we're used to that movie raptor where they're actually menacing, you know, yeah. hunters in the most dangerous game sense, not just predators. And here, I think he's trying to draw the line that yes, they are clever, like like you were saying about the um, the orcas. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are at the end of the day just animals, and they're not going to worry a problem that's not presented to them. Sure, I just feel like everything we've seen of their behavior and the T-Rex behavior in this book up to this point doesn't fit with this new behavior. Mm-hmm. Like even everything Grant says about the, the alligators, like this whole thing about their nesting, right? Like that's where they are. They're in a big raptor nest. Mm-hmm. So like, if we're going to keep calling comparisons to raptors with gators and animal and all this other shit, then like, I mean, I, I just feel like I'd like to have seen it more. It just feels like they're weirdly, like in a peaceful place mm-hmm. and nothing bad happens to them in this space, but they're literally in the most dangerous place. They could be a fucking nest. Like, as I said before, and as Grant said, mother animals are like really defensive and protective of their animal of their young. And you don't want to fucking get between a mother and her young ever in the animal kingdom, right? Or, you know, in with humans. Um, but, um, <laughs> like imagine if you, uh, like ripped young children away from their parents and like kept them away from them for years. 
Like, both those children and the parents are going to be fucking furious with you, and they're never going to forget it. And their story is probably going to be so empathetic, and, like, com- and, and people with compassion and hearts are going to relate to that, how awful that is, forever. And it's going to be really hard to, like, justify why you did it. So, like, when it comes to Grant doing that in the raptor nest... Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like it's something he should have thought about and just fucking not done in the first place. It's a good point. It's, uh... Well, it kind of falls apart when you also think that if I'm following that metaphor to the conclusion, it also suggests that I'm arguing that Grant should have just gassed them to death. (laughs) That's a good point also. Um, First. This has that kind of wrapping it up feel. And and perhaps... Yeah, but it feels feels rushed. It feels book seven. that's, That's what I'm... Yeah. And again, maybe because we spent so much time analyzing an entire series where the entire last book had this feeling, we can recognize it. Um, yeah. But I, I, I think I even remember the second time I read Jurassic Park, getting through this section and it all feeling like a blur, like what's happening? And so, right, going through it now, it, it just, it just rushed. It's, it's. He's been writing for a long time. He's been doing research on outdated uh, crocodile <laughs> manuals. And he wants to get to publisher. And wool manuals. And you didn't want me to say, oh my. Wow. Because <laughs> he's talking about the lady alligators. Yeah. 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 I'm smart, man. <laughs> <laughs> No take backsies. You said it. I'm... <laughs> <sighs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, man. It was. It just felt like I mean, rushed is a is a is a probably a pretty accurate word, but there's it just felt incomplete. Like it felt like there was something missing in why all of a sudden when these animals like they could, the animals could smell really well too. Like they were able to be so efficient at hunting them in the. Uh, visitor center so incredibly efficient yet here in their home base they're like inept and it just feels out of place it 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 also has we understand at this point the raptors are dangerous and how dangerous they are but grant ellie and gennaro is Muldoon with them or is he just did he stay up on top of the hole he's he's on the top Right, right right um they go in and it has the danger of a documentary film crew, you know, going to check out the lions. It it doesn't right. have the stakes of we're going into the evil dragon's lair, you know, kind of which 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 yeah. I feel like it, it, at this point in this book, as we've been introduced to the raptors, it should it, it and it's exactly it's That's more exactly like a scientific point. expedition, and it's just like we, you just wanted to wrap this up. Yeah. And, and come up with this migratory like you, thing and find the nest because they didn't even destroy. They didn't even gas them. Like that was we brought all this gas and the gas masks. But then we just go out on the beach or on the helicopter. Goodbye. Yeah. It's like if you were going to do a movie about uh, I don't remember what story this is. And I don't remember. I'm probably going to get parts of it wrong. But my memory is there's a story about a uh, like a hunting expedition in India, like probably 100 years ago or something where they set up camp in this tiger's territory and this tiger would come at night into their camp and steal one of them at a time. The ghost in the darkness. 
yeah, I think that's it. Um, and it's like, okay, let's say you start your story like that, and then the story ends with you cub petting. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like, it's it's like that, where you're like, what? What a weird twist, and it doesn't feel like it's right. Like, it feels totally off. It feels... Right, like both like events work off. together, but not in the same story. It's It's like right. Michael Crichton took a piece from another puzzle... And just jammed it into this one. Yeah, it's like he was like, yeah, you know what? He was like, I did. I've done a lot of dinosaur research, and I've discovered this pretty obscure uh, piece called Land Before Time, and I feel like it's gonna work really well in this moment. I can't do I it. I'm sorry. Face. I stole that from you, Doug. I stole the puzzle analogy from you. <laughs> Our pre-conversation conversation. I'm sorry. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, that's my that's my take on the on the the nesting there. Uh, so, if you don't have any more notes on that chapter, nope. that brings us to chapter fifty-six. Hammond. Uh, I only have an overview. Don't really have a other than an acknowledgement of that's it for Hammond. Yeah, I mean, I felt like this this reminded me so much of the this the the way he wrote Nedry's attack and how chillingly dark that was. Okay. Like it, it, the way that he describes Hammond's death reminds me of descriptions I've read about uh, hyperthermia. Like, have you ever read To Build a Fire? Mm-mm. Um, it's stuff like that where it's like you sort of just get like sleepy. And you sort of just get like tired and that means you're dying. Like that means your body's shutting down and giving up. Mm-hmm. Even if you mentally want to fight it, you have to, you have to, you have to mentally force your body to do things to keep you alive. Because if you succumb to your like urges or your desires or your like the, what your body's telling you to do, not what your mind's telling you to do, but your body's telling you to do, you'll just fucking die. Right. And, um, he doesn't have a choice because it's a neurotoxin. So it's not like it's I'm not I'm not trying to shit on him and say like, oh, he's so stupid for, you know, falling asleep. It's like, no, he doesn't have a choice. Right. He's being poisoned. But um, but it had that same kind of my body's against me horror. Yes. Yes. And and you're trapped. Like if you're underwater, like drowning is the same thing where you're like, I don't have a choice here. <laughs> like I, I have to my body will force me to try to breathe. Right. And. That's not going to go well. That's the end. Yeah. Yeah. If I had to choose, though, I think that, like, hyperthermia... Oh, 100%. Like, would be a really good one. I mean, even the compy one doesn't sound horrible. No, I mean, but yeah, I agree. I, agree. Like, the, I, would, euphoria, I would take that over nap, a lot of other things. I mean, the idea yeah. it's weird to say that death by being eaten alive doesn't sound horrible, but this one didn't. I don't know how they could determine the euphoria, though. Like... Narr- narr- narrator's to- omniscience that's the only way yeah, yeah. you couldn't yeah you couldn't. Like it's i guess unless you had i think it was i think they justified on hand like- and you let somebody get bit by compies and then chewed the compies away and you know brought them back and later in the hospital interviewed them and say how'd you feel i think that's what it was i think he, he mentioned something in a throwaway line maybe about like the workers being bitten and surviving and describing this sense of euphoria Something like that. But is there anything um, is there I, anything comparable um, in real life in the animal kingdom? Yeah, that can that would bite you and have this effect on you, because 
I don't believe like any snake venom does this. Affect, the affecting only thing you I can think like of... that. I mean, it, it 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 gives you a physiological reaction, but not a not this like sleepy sedate sedation kind of effect. The only thing I can think of is is it. Uh, and I'm not an expert on this, but the only thing I can think of is that sometimes you will get an adrenaline dump um, to compensate for the the thrill and and terror of of being attacked, and sometimes that will negate the pain to a point where it kind of feels euphoric okay um but i can't think of any animal sting or bite that makes you feel like thrilled i mean maybe we're going the wrong maybe it just made him sleepy and kind of whatever disengaged but yeah i don't know yeah um I don't either. I feel like he would have mentioned it at some point if he had had an example in the natural world. Um, and then that brings us to chapter 57. The beach. I only have an overview. Go for it. Uh, just at this point, again, because we're, we're following along with the book, I still don't understand why the raptors aren't eating everyone. <laughs> like, it's just... They're, like it's like there's the way he's describing it is like they're standing on the beach with the raptors and the raptors are just darting from left to right and they're not eating them <laughs> which again every other time they're around they're like trying to eat them i kind of i mean i probably fill in some gaps in the narrative but i kind of read it like there was a point where the cave exits or whatever exits and the raptors were farther down on the beach they'd already progressed mm. And they were just kind of standing okay. back, like having this, because there were a pyre watching them dart back and forth, but they weren't down there with them. And then the Maybe. helicopter showed up and they scattered. Maybe. Which is interesting that they didn't go back to their nest, right. where Grant, Ellie, and Gennaro would have been. Right. It's just, it, it's that thing where, like, it feels like difficult space work. Like, it just feels like I'm having a hard time following the physical location of everybody in the sequence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that makes it hard to just follow in general. Well, if you don't have anything, that brings us to chapter 58. Approaching dark. My note is on page 396. Okay. The moment where the man doesn't ask Ellie if she's in charge <laughs> is, uh, I think, for me, the conclusive moment that Crichton has been, in my opinion, up to this point, and maybe, maybe your acknowledgement section will change this, because uh, I really don't know what you've read in that. Uh, but it makes me feel like he's criticizing misogyny this whole time that is what i got here right um Um, he hasn't given ellie a lot to do so clearly he's not a perfect person right but it definitely felt like that was in keeping with the mindset of that character in that time period right in that part of the world um being in the military all those things just it, it it that lack of acknowledgement from him for Ellie gave us a very well-rounded character view of him. And we've, we've known him for two sentences and we never see him again. But think about it on the meta sense too. If he had just written that the man asked Grant and asked Gennaro and then didn't mention that he didn't ask Ellie, right? but still didn't ask her, that would feel much more like a inadvertent, default uh exclusion of ellie as even a possibility 
by the author. No, I agree. But the fact that he includes this idea that the man doesn't acknowledge her is, I think, a signal to the audience that you should be taking note of how he doesn't acknowledge her. That's bad. He also the, like you should not like this. He also doesn't go out of his way to say, to say, see what I'm saying here, which exactly I was like, OK, OK, you made your point and you're going to let me uh, ruminate on that. Good for you. Yeah. Like a, don't hit me over the head with it. <laughs> yeah, like a like a cloven hoofed mammal. I'm going to ruminate on it. Like a ruminant. (laughs) My next page note is on page 397. Okay. Um, Okay, so this moment here uh, where the the men in the helicopter are kind of pleading with Grant and everybody to to know who's in charge. Right. Is kind of perfect when we're talking going back to that theme of control Mm -hmm. in this whole book. Because it's I think it's once again Crichton showing us how much humans long for control how much we like really want it we really want that feeling like begging to be led begging to be guided to knowledge and safety and and grant again being our surrogate here having just gone through and his his whole ordeal his hero's journey of going through a weekend of trial by fire wrought by men who sought to control science beyond their grasp in my opinion here is in he has become enlightened enough just like enlightened enough to refuse to attribute leadership to anyone because i think he is he has crossed that threshold of understanding that that breeds catastrophe mm-hmm. when you assign somebody else control of your destiny of your like uh choices about your life then you are losing that agency for yourself so what he sees here in my opinion is these government agents begging to know who they can defer to in this situation and grant says i've seen how that goes the entire time i've been here is seeing how the the mistakes people make when they're led by anyone and you know what i'm saying fuck it i'm just gonna i'm not i'm not giving you that i i I think that it's it seems like the conclusion to grant's arc Mm-hmm. is this moment and it feels it's odd because it is so subtle it isn't like he's not standing on a pile of dead raptors with a machete and a shotgun he's like with ellie like you know cradling his thigh right, or his, right like right. his you know his his calf um yeah it's just a moment of quiet reflection it's it's just a moment where he he's like he's become enlightened he's like reached nirvana you know he's like he's there he's like holy shit i i kind of understand and I'm not going to play anymore. Um, I liked it. I just thought that was really like, it was subtle and it was kind of powerful. Do you have any notes in that chapter? I don't. Then that brings us to the epilogue. San Jose. I only have a overview. here. Okay. What's that? That I think it's symbolically important that both Malcolm and Hammond die at the end of the book. Again, talking Why about is that talking about that. Overall, I, want, I, I wanted to bring up their deaths, but but I want to know. Well, in, in talking about that overall theme, the your the 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 idea of uh, complete control is represented by Hammond, and the idea that there can be no such thing as complete control and the pursuit of it is folly is represented by Malcolm. Mm-hmm. 
And so I think symbolically, it's really important for both of them to die as if to say neither side is really right. You have to be more like Grant. You have to find that middle ground of like self-reliance and attempt to control as much as you can. Like it's more about understanding where your limits are for what you can and can't control and controlling what's in your sphere and being wary of the people and yourself reaching beyond their sphere of control. Don't just achieve for achievement's sake. Yes. Yes. Um, And I, I think that like, that's the one of the big messages Crichton's kind of espousing here. I think that's the right mm-hmm. word. Um, yeah. yeah. Is uh, the, the returning to a more balanced relationship with our environment and natural things. Um, and I feel like it, it just works. And I feel like it's really interesting to see those three characters like balance out um, in the end. Again, if each one of them represents an aspect of the argument of the debate, he's the, 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 the case he's making with this book. God, the devil, and man, sure, arguably. Sure. Which one's Malcolm? Uh, the devil. Yeah, he's dressed all he in black. He's in your sexy. ear that things are, yeah. And Hammond's creating things. Yeah. Yeah. Grant's just, I don't know. Grant just, just digs just in the dirt. Up. Right. Uh, my only other note is just, does it seem like the Gutierrez at the end knows a little too much? It did a little bit, which brought me back to the very beginning of the book where I'm like, is he like some sort of secret agent? Yeah. Like, like r- r- rubbing out this raptor th- or the copy and like, and he's, he's the one who's going to make it disappear kind of. This is totally where I thought that arc was going. And then he didn't. I'm like, oh, weird. Okay. Uh. And then back here. And then at the end, it's just like, what the hell, Gutierrez? What's going on there? Yeah. It's like he shows up like the smoking man and like has all this knowledge. Yeah. And shit, but then he walks away and is like, oh, the smoking man just works at Walmart. Like, what? Like. <laughs> Yes. What? That's weird. It 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 was a little weird. Maybe maybe he was a construct. Maybe he's like a a Deus Ex Machina <laughs> kind of character that just to make these humps smooth them out, and that's why we're feeling that weird. Well, I I think I think it's supposed to suggest that we that the Gutierrez character has not let this sleeping dog lie from the beginning of the book, and has had his own adventure investigating this stuff that he's figured out. And then like he shows up at the end to like, to basically just kind of be like a deus ex machina and talk to grant about it. But it's, it's more of like a, uh, it's just an exposition bomb. You know, it's just like, Oh, this mm-hmm. thing has to show up to tell you about what's really going on. Cause he's, it's really, it's all telling, not showing. So like, I'm realized. Oh, God. So it's, it's, it's not like he's not solving anything. Which no. the which the god machine would do? Sure. Um, Wait, well, he's smoothing out lumps. That's kind of what I meant. Is, he's, he's... He is. But I don't. I mean, I'm just trying to get my you know plot devices correct. Sure. I said that's why I said like a fucking doesn't matter. So like Fine. a like a demigod machine. Sure. Um... <laughs> what? <laughs> no, it's just fine. It was good. I realized. I'm funny. I, well. <laughs> I realize that I have cast him mentally as the he likes to dig character. Yes. From the Jurassic Park right, film, right. which is interesting. I'm wondering actually if they did they ever refer to him by name? Did did Gennaro in that scene refer to him? Is he See, is he Grant's Gutierrez like or? me? He's a digger. Uh, he he's a digger. K 
Qué lindo es. What does that mean? <laughs> okay. Um, emotional reaction to the end, to the changes, to deaths. Um, I really liked this book. I'm super grateful that we read it. I'm really glad that our uh, magical uh, dice ex machina picked <laughs> picked this book for us. I I feel like a bucket list thing has been kicked off, and I hope I don't die now because of it. And I fucking I really enjoyed it. I feel like it's the best book I've read in a long time, even with the little like outdated science or the the criticisms I have of it in a little couple spots. I feel like there, it's such a treat to read a book that can handle the criticisms I had because it didn't I didn't have to make bigger ones <laughs> like it did. Right. It wasn't so like full of errors and and plot holes and contradictions right. that I had to constantly address them over and over and over again. And that felt and arguably it just felt refreshing. Sorry. That's just, it just, it was really nice. No. Arguably a lot of the criticisms stem from just the known science at the time. Yeah, totally. And that's, and that's not and a problem with the book. It's just like right. me feeling the need to reaffirm to myself that science has advanced a little bit and I should check in with it. Um, but, but in terms of deaths, you asked about deaths specifically because that does specifically, alter in, from the films. Yes, yes. Uh, Hammond and Malcolm, even arguably Gennaro, right. all had different fates. Yes. And I know there are emotional attachments to those characters. How do you? I mean, obviously Hammond's a little easier to swallow because he uh, was not quite as avuncular. Well, also, he wasn't fighting back and and the copies were able to really just take like bite sized pieces and they're not going to take bigger bites than they can swallow. So it's going to be very easy. Absolutely. But (laughs) um, but Malcolm was pretty spot on for Malcolm and and losing him was. uh, He's not dead. Difficult. He's not fucking dead. He's not fucking dead. There's no fucking way he's dead. Like it was it's. It's like, I know what I said about like how symbolic it is, but like, I just don't buy it. It's like, it's like Hagrid. It's just like, I'm staring in the face of this thing that like, here's all the evidence we have. We have Grant asking, um, fuck Muldoon asking Muldoon. He just, he just says something like, you know, Malcolm, and and he just shakes his head. That's inconclusive. Right. Then there's a line later where they said uh, they won't even let us bury Malcolm and Hammond. Right. Um, that I think is supposed to be more concrete, but I also yeah. feel I feel a bait and switch. I feel okay. it in my in my my red herring boner. Like okay. it, oh, excuse me, red herring bones. Uh, no, I love I love the herring boner pattern on suit jackets. Um, I f- I I disagree with you. I feel like that was supposed to be conclusive, which makes the next book very troubling for me. Okay. Because just like the movie, the main character is Ian Malcolm. Right. And. I don't like that. Maybe rereading it because I've only read this once. Uh, but I remember very early on being just like, no, 
this is this is you were asked by your good friend Steven Spielberg to write a book that we can make a movie on and can you have Ian Malcolm be the character because he got a lot of good play and he'll come back and I don't like it but maybe my mind will change well here's what I can say um I had a note somewhere okay I had a note that I erased um in the chapter where they get picked up by the helicopter and, and Grant and uh, Muldoon have that conversation. My note there was, I don't believe Ian Malcolm's dead. And then I erased that note because I got to that chapter where they say they won't even let us bury him. And I was like, well, there's no need to say this anymore. I'll just delete that note. Right. But then uh, I read this other book by this guy named Backer. And he said that Malcolm's alive in the next book. Um, no, he, I, I went through the uh, the next book and I, I didn't I didn't like cheat, but I was going through the chapters to break them up for us to read, oh, okay. and to like set up the chapters. And at mm-hmm. some point, I'm pretty sure one of the chapters we either start or end on is called Malcolm, and I was like, okay. what? <laughs> and so I unfortunately um. I had that I, I had that sort of robbed from me. And I apologize for that. Not from you. No, I know. But anytime something is robbed, I feel like I'm responsible. Um, That's healthy. <laughs> here's why I don't find it to be a, 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 what did you call it? Um, a red herring. Sure. Like it's setting up a twist. There's no, I, I, as, as far as I can remember, there's no payoff. There's no, he's suddenly alive. It's just he's there they do pay it lip service in a very stupid way as far as they remember but it's not germane to the story that his death was faked or covered up or hidden from us it's just backpedaling see i would do it like if it was me and i and i wanted malcolm to be the lead of the next book i would have the next book start with like like i don't know you even watch game of thrones but like when when uh and spoilers if you haven't watched or read game of thrones uh when when Jon Snow d- comes back to life, um, I would have it be kind of like that. I would have it be like Mal- the, the Lost World starts with Ian Malcolm gasping for air and opening his eyes, bloodshot, jaundiced eyes as um, someone has just, you know, uh, crashed cart him or something like that. Sure. Like, and then he and then he's like in immense pain. Uh, and you can even do it like really lazily with being like, and then he notices there's a flurry of people around him. There's bright lights and his vision's blurred. Um, there's something in his eyes and his, his legs hurt really bad. And oh, what's that smell? That putrid, rotten smell. Uh, and then he blacks out. Cut to weeks later, he's recovering in a hospital. There you go. And you know what? Maybe there is something like that from the book. I don't remember. I don't know. I've read the next book. We'll have to wait and see. Um, but, but so like, I, unfortunately, like I didn't get to experience that anticipation of him being dead and then having him come back. Um, so whatever title, your book chapters better <laughs> dick. Well, um, anyway, but yeah, uh, uh, do, you, do you have any final thoughts on this reread? The, uh, well, I want to, I want to talk briefly, briefly, briefly about the acknowledgements. Yeah, let's do that. Where he uh, he thanks this guy named Backer. Yeah, Backer. You asked me to look it up because you thought maybe it was a different reference. But no, there is a paleontologist named Backer. 
that uh, was instrumental in helping Crichton write the book, and that's why he gets a shout out in the movie. And John He's a real guy. Horner is the guy I was thinking of who has the mm. character that's based off him in the second movie, uh, who's got gotcha. this cowboy hat, really long hair and a beard. Um, yeah, that's that. That's that dude. I saw something recently about him suggesting that instead of using frog DNA to resurrect dinosaurs, he was like, let's use chicken DNA. Yeah, it'd be tasty. I don't think that's why he was saying it. It's not a KFC. No, that's where we get dino nuggets. <laughs> No, that that's a different thing. Um, it's just it's just white chicken breast meat smashed into the shapes of dinosaurs. No, no, it's from dinosaurs. Well, it is in that birds are dinosaurs, but it's not. They don't come out that shape. Th- think about it. Try to try to cr- use critical thinking. They sell millions of those things every year to families at Costco. Where are they going to get that many chickens? KFC's already bought them all. Clearly. They've resurrected dinosaurs to make the dino nuggets. It just makes sense. Um, fine. Actually, I was lying. That whole thing was fake. <laughs> oh, really? Thank you. Yep. Thank you for clearing that up. I'm, I sold ooh. you a bill of goods and you bought I it. I bought it. You can Hook, put that on my duck-billed dinosaur. Maybe you're not so smart. Um, yeah, I, I think that, but I, I uh, apparently he he uh, Horner has received a, uh, some criticism recently for that, as if that's I, I don't know if that's a real possibility or if it's just him being like, I really want Jurassic Park to be real. <laughs> like I really, really <laughs> want dinosaurs to come back to life. I mean, maybe. Why would he get criticism for it? Maybe he's just being silly. Maybe he was being silly. I don't know. Are scientists allowed to be silly? Oh, yeah. I mean, they named that one Carl, planet. Carl Sagan loved to get people to pull his finger. They named that one planet Uranus, and that's pretty fucking right? silly. See? Like, they knew what they were doing. A gas giant? Come on. Almost a spit take. Oh, damn it. It's my, it's my <laughs> life goal. I mean, I'm pretty sure I've done it before, but, like, I just... Oh, you've definitely done it before. All right. Well, um, um, yeah. What you got? I I enjoyed reading this book immensely. I it it I know I've 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 certainly plowed through books in the past and missed a lot of things because of that. So it was nice to slow it down and go through it and 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 talk about it. And I uh, definitely refreshing after the last book you yeah, read. Yeah. Um. No, it was great. It's a great, great fun time. Yeah, I'll say one more time though that I was really surprised at the, the like the resonance of Malcolm's rants. Hmm. Uh, how they're still applicable today? How they're extremely applicable today, and how I in no way had any warning that that was going to happen. That would be mm-hmm. part of this story. That I would get that at all. Really impressed by that. I don't have another way of describing it. It was just very impressive. Sure. So yeah, the, uh, if you don't have anything else to say, then the uh, that that's our we're, the next thing we're gonna read is gonna be the Lost World. Um, we're just gonna move on to the sequel. Take care of them. I since we've got them. Yeah, might as well knock it out. Yeah, exactly. So join us. And we'll have some mysterious book chain. How many episodes is that? You said you blocked out chapters. Seven episodes. Another seven. Another seven. I, it might be. Nice. I might. I might mess with the chapters and cut that down to six. 
Um, but do you have a do you have a what the first one's gonna be? Uh, the first one should or do be. You, do you uh, want to wait on that? I think I'll say for now it's at least the first chapter, the, the introduction rather, the introduction through a chapter called Thorn, which is right before the second configuration. So it's like a very convenient place to. I mean, there were seven configurations, so it's configurations instead of iterations. Yes. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Um, and I might, I, like I said, I might, tr- I might try to cram this into six episodes because I'd like mm-hmm. to have this done before the end of the year, and I don't know if we have seven more weeks left in the year. We might. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, but I'm gonna try to get this. I'm gonna try to get this done before 2021. That's my goal. So okay. I'll, I'll look into that. Um, uh, I do not have a new word alert. We did plenty last time. Yeah. So much so that show is not even done being cut yet. Yep. Well, it will be by the time this show's aired. So. Yes, that's true. So don't worry. A behind the scenes for them. Sure. We. Th- this is how far in advance we record. I guess. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, if you don't have anything else, then I th- I think you should. Uh, we're we're you're gonna record a movie commentary right that's the plan for for uh steven spielberg's jurassic park. jurassic park check out our patreon for that you can go and and uh become a patron at death readers or patreon slash death readers i never even mentioned your sweater i'm sorry what this old thing what are you talking about <laughs> what are you talking your jurassic about? park christmas sweater <laughs> it's amazing I, well it's, i mean it's 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 maroon it's got the Jurassic Park logo. It's got raptor claws all over it and snowflakes. It's nice. It's a good sweater. I want to get a Christmas sweater. I don't know what I want yet. Oh, uh, there's plenty of good options. I recommend, not a design or anything, but I recommend finding uh, Christmas sweaters that are actually knitted because mm-hmm. there are. I, I had the unfortunate reality of getting one that's just a sweater. That's like, 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 a, like, a, like a sweats kind of thing with a print on it? Yes. Yeah. And I, I hate it. Uh huh. But I have it, so I I like it, you know. Who who gave you that? Which one? The one you hate. Probably myself. I probably asked oh, okay. asked for it for Christmas nice or had my wife get get it for me. Mm-hmm. But she's she's we've done a, she's done a really good job at like we try to we try to get these every year. Yeah. Which means we have a ton of them because we've been together since we were seventeen. So like, oh, it, it's not a tradition that goes back that far. But um, no, it was it was that was not what the awe was for. <laughs> like, oh, that is a that is a damn commitment to clothing styles. Yeah, but we have a couple for the last like five or six years or so. So we're running out of closet space for Christmas sweaters. But this is one of my favorites. And I figured, you know, it's 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 winter time now that we're, we're reading this book. And, you know, I have it. I have so I might dust it off and bring it out and enjoy it this this episode nice yeah and it's a good thing it's a video visual medium so that people mm-hmm. can really enjoy how nerdy and silly i am mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah instead yeah. of just hearing about it anyway um uh you you like highlander you should get a highlander christmas sweater oh uh, it's not that's okay, not, not where i'm that. gonna go with what would you no. want to go with the property or do you want to go with something else like a I'll, I'll, I'll figure it out it'll be a private decision between me and myself and your and your priest um you sure. don't need to get involved. Okay. Oh, well, um, on that awkward as fuck note, um, <laughs> uh, check out our Patreon. Uh, please go ahead and give us a 
a review on iTunes and, and Apple podcasts. Um, subscribe to our Patreon page. Subscribe to our iTunes page. Uh, tell your friends about us and check us out all over the place. Um, we are st- we're st- we're still doing this thing. So um, yeah, and thanks for listening as as long as you have. Uh, I hope I hope that the divergence from Harry Potter wasn't too jarring and potentially enjoyable. I'm arguably very enjoyable. I mean, at least for us, and that's really all that matters. So right. <laughs> Uh, I, I think I believe that was Death Readers. So I'm Doug. I'm Rob. Thank you for listening. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Podbean. These reviews might seem silly, but they actually help us out a lot. Check us out on Twitter at Real Death Reader. If you want more Death Readers content, there's more available by joining Death Readers Patreon at www.patreon.com/deathreaders. If you hate us and want to tell us how terrible we are. Please send all hate mail comments to our Reddit account, you slash deathreaders. And you're going to let me uh, ruminate on that. Good for you. Yeah. Like a... Don't hit me over the head with it. <laughs> yeah, like a like a cloven-hoofed mammal. I'm going to ruminate on it. Like a ruminant type of... Like, like an, un- an animal un- ungulant? Be... Yeah, I think they're also called ruminants. Or is that like the... the... I ungulant's the end of my animal knowledge. You're you're the David Attenborough fan. Hold on, I might have just fucked this whole thing. <laughs> Ruminant noun, animal that chews cud. Mm. Okay, but it has mm. nothing to do with her cloven hoof. Mm. 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 Specifically, an herbivore's even-toed hoofed animals. Mm, or mammals with a three or four chambered stomach. That's exactly what I was saying. Mm, mm, because mm, they look like ruminant. they're ruminating while they're chewing cud. Are you just gonna do my joke again? Like, <laughs> I'm I'm actually into the etymology now. Is that why they're called that? I, I appreciate that your joke has been joke joke jocular, <laughs> <laughs> and we will keep all this in the post. Jocular. Yeah. New word alert, jocular. New word alert, ruminant. (laughs) So. (laughs) You can't take back that you said I'm smart. (laughs) 